Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes today on a Sunday afternoon. And we're going to be talking about the book of Proverbs today. And it's always interesting doing these book overviews because some of it is drawing on teaching series that you or I have done or both of us have done. Uh A lot of it is lesson work and commentary work. And then you realize there are some books that you kind of feel like a bad pastor, bad teacher you haven't taught before. <laughs> right. So that might not be true with you, but I've never I've never taught the book of Proverbs before. And uh, when I opened up my file of books of the Bible, I don't even have a file for Proverbs. So if you want to <laughs> what turn... Is that, what is that saying? If you want to turn this podcast off right now, this is your chance. <laughs> but w- what was interesting is uh, when I come to the book of Proverbs, and I think this is actually a, an interesting insight into the book itself... I tend to think about the book of Proverbs a lot less from a teaching standpoint and a lot more from a Christian life, counseling, pastoral ministry standpoint. And I know that there's also something that you'll bring up later, just the real life business and Mm -hmm. um, how to to be a man of God aspect to Proverbs. But, you know, I'm going through and thinking in ministry, and I think this is true with ministry as a profession and ministry just in every Christian life, there are different tools that you've been given. I mean, one of the one of the things that we think about a lot is that the Bible has been given to us um, for use in all kinds of circumstances, good for rebuke and for training in righteousness and reproof and, right. and so that we would be equipped for every good work. And I look at a book like Proverbs and I think, man, there are a hundred times that I've drawn from reading Proverbs in a quiet time or mm-hmm. in the mornings or doing the whole, you know, read it on the day of the month that corresponds to right. the that chapter. chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you use it in your everyday life, right. whether you're talking to yourself or talking to somebody else. That's one of the things that Proverbs is just really uniquely good for mm-hmm. in the Christian life. And that doesn't mean it's not good to teach as well, but it, it really has that effect of equipping you to live your life as a Christian. And there's a reason for that. The, the goal behind Proverbs is to make us into wise people. You've probably heard that Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature mm-hmm. set of books, which is a little bit of a junk drawer of books because technically wisdom encapsulates Psalms as well, which are very different. Right. Um, A lot of times you'll see Job in the wisdom section, but you have Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are very different books. Right. But you see wisdom traditions throughout the ancient world, and this is kind of the Hebrew and now Christian wisdom section. Right. And it began, the book of Proverbs tells us, in the life of Solomon. Who, if you remember the life of Solomon at the end of, of uh, 2 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Kings, David passes the kingdom to his son Solomon, and God asks him, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, in kind of a surprise move, decides to ask for wisdom. Mm-hmm. And because of that, God gives him so many other things as well. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, you get Solomon's resume and... Uh, I'll just tell you, if this is all you knew about Solomon, you would want to read his book, right. Proverbs. It says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than all men, and it lists some, some famous wise men. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, 
and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish and people of all nations come to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. Wow. So he's got a pretty great resume. And in chapter one, we see that a lot of these proverbs were either gathered by him or spoken by him. In fact, one of the things you'll encounter when you start to study the book of Proverbs is you'll have commentaries who will say, well, how do we know where all these Proverbs actually came from? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of these that we see in other writings. There's several really prominent Egyptian manuscripts that have similar Proverbs. And I don't really see that as a problem for the book of Proverbs. I don't know that it's claiming exclusive originality to all of these. But I also think that passage in 1 Kings tells us he was collecting wisdom from across the face of the earth. And so putting this all together in this form makes a lot of sense. If This is kind of the Hebrew canon of wisdom. Yes, and I think it's uniquely Hebrew in this sense, is wisdom in Hebrew sense, Proverbs 1, 7 anchors this in the covenant with Yahweh, in that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And again, you'll see this in chapter 9 of Proverbs, but that's not obviously not something you'll see in the Egyptian or other ancient Near Eastern Proverbs mm-hmm. or wisdom literature. And so it is a practical guide in some ways to life, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but it's anchored in the theistic tradition of the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So I I think you're absolutely right. And I do think Solomon, most of these, in fact, let me give you a rough breakdown of the book, and this is really high level, is chapters 1 through 24, basically, are attributed to Solomon, who lived in the 10th century B.C., and chapters 25 through 29 are, it's said to have been collected by the men of Hezekiah, and these are further sayings of Solomon, and that's in the late 8th century. So you basically have 29 chapters of Proverbs that are attributed to, basically, Solomon, or the collections that he made. Chapter 30 is the sayings of Agur, 31, the sayings of Lemuel, and no one knows who they are. A lot of theories that maybe they weren't Israelite, which is possible, Maybe they were Arabs. Maybe they were kings in the region with whom Solomon had a good relationship with. We don't really know, but they're still valuable wisdom sayings. I think what makes this unique is it's embedded into the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. For example, if you define wisdom the way a lot of people today do, which would be shrewdness, for example, all the Proverbs that talk about don't use unequal weights. In other words, be just in your business dealings. Well, actually, I read a book one time called Looking Out for Number One. Mm-hmm. Very popular business book early on. And it, its thesis was anything is moral, basically. Anything is moral if it accrues to your advantage and you don't shoot somebody. So mm-hmm. if you could get away with having unequal weights, well, that's just a shrewd business move. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not going to see that in Proverbs. It's anchored into... Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's interesting about Proverbs is if you pay attention to the section headings, you realize that the original use of Proverbs is in training children to grow up to be wise. And in chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see this, chapter 2, chapter 6, all through the first half of Proverbs. And then you see in chapter 31, uh, it's from a mother to a son mm-hmm. on how to see the world, how to be wise, how to grow up and to live in a Jewish culture. But if we're talking 31, maybe any culture. Mm-hmm. But 
this is a catechesis of a kind, which is, which is training for children, right. teaching children to grow up into the way that they ought to live. And we think about this not just in terms of age. Obviously, these are things that you can easily teach to children. These Proverbs are easy to remember. They make sense. They're very simple. But these are also ways that we see ourselves growing up into the faith, how to live in, in the faith, how to live in the kingdom of God by following these Proverbs. Right. Which leads me to a, an interesting point about Proverbs. It's it's a little bit of an anomaly in the Christian canon because it seems on the surface to pit living by faith and living by works right. against each other. So you have, we're saved by grace through faith. It's all faith. We're living by faith. And then you turn it open to Proverbs and the way that we're tempted to read this and the way a lot of people read it is, and also follow all these rules and your life will be great. <laughs> right. Which that's something that's really, uh, you see this a little bit in the book of James, who mm-hmm. takes this problem head on. That's really something that you have to think about when you're reading wisdom literature. Right. Is it reads like, if you do this, then this will happen. Almost like it's predictive. It's like, right. it's like a success guide. If you do this, then if you commit your plans to the Lord, then you'll succeed. Right. And everybody who's known that verse for about 12 seconds realizes that sometimes you commit your plans to the Lord and they don't succeed. Right. So what do you do in those situations? Mm-hmm. So that, that leads to the question of how should we go about reading this book? Yeah, I, I have traditionally thought of it as uh, basically good advice for living that is consistent with the truths of God. In other words, instead of reading it as a, you need to do this, um, I've read it more as, here are observations on living a life of wisdom that is consistent. Here's the thing. You won't see anything in the book of Proverbs that says, you know, actually to get ahead, you ought to do this. Or I've observed that this is what you should do, and it's an ungodly thing to do. Mm -hmm. In fact, you'll see things to the opposite. You'll say, you know, you'll see a number of Proverbs that basically talk about giving to the poor is like lending to God. And you say, yeah, well, but it makes my bank account smaller. Mm -hmm. But in other words, the perspective is very godly. So I've always thought about it as as observations, and that even explains some of the little bit contradictory observations that it Mm -hmm. makes. Yeah, I, I think to put a little theological perspective around the book of Proverbs, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that the storyline of the Bible goes from Adam, who is a failed regent. He's a failed king right. over the dominion that God has entrusted to him. So he's supposed to be a priest king in Eden and the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. People's geography of Eden and in Genesis one through three gets a little tricky. Right. God plants a garden in Eden, mm-hmm. and Adam is supposed to fill the earth, not just Eden. We think of like the, a big wall of hedges right. around and gates, you know, because <laughs> there's the angel that blocks the right. deal. Again, where our theology is probably more informed by Milton than it is by the Bible, uh, okay. you have this little de- this little um, garden oasis where Adam and Eve are living, but they've been given charge with ruling over the world as sub-regents of God. Cultivate the earth, fill the earth, multiply. They -hmm. have been given dominion over all the creatures. They name the animals. And he fails. He sins. And the rest of the Bible, long story short, is recovering that rule 
all the way to the end where there's the new heavens and the new earth and you're in the new Jerusalem. Spoiler alert. Yeah. If you haven't gotten to the end yet, uh, it is creation redeemed at the end. Um, so you have the contrast between Adam and Christ. And in the New Testament, one of the things we realize is, oh, we, because we are in Christ, are being restored. And in fact, it's even better than being restored because it's not just going back to the beginning. It's better than it was in the beginning with Adam. Right. In Christ, we've been redeemed. And so we take on that rulership with Christ, which is something that we're not really that comfortable talking about as Christians. We don't talk about that kingly and queenly role that we play with Christ. But you know, what you said earlier makes Proverbs much more applicable to us if we think of ourselves as princes mm-hmm. or kings, as you know, we're sons of the Most High God, daughters of the Most High God. A lot of Proverbs sounds like it is educating children uh, and educating kings. Mm-hmm. And I see that connection that if we think of ourselves that way, this speaks really personally to us. It is. And, and, and you're exactly right. It, it, this is a handbook on how to be a just ruler. And we should start to think about, okay, if we have been called to be in Christ and the New Testament is clear, we are going to reign with him. Right. Then in, in a, in a way that's, that's um, bereft of all the earthly baggage that rulership brings with it. We've been called to grow up into the image of Christ in the kingdom of God. And so this book is essentially about what it means to live in the presence of the king, in the presence of Christ, in a just society. So in some ways, you have the same tension of the already, not yet that you see in the New Testament. You know, if Christ is reigning right now, it says in Hebrews 2, then why doesn't it look like it? Because, mm-hmm. right. you know, if you just turn on the news, it, it, either he's not doing a very good job reigning or <laughs> something is wrong or it hadn't uh-huh. clicked in yet. But the same tension is there in Proverbs of it really describes our world well in some ways. Mm -hmm. And then it looks like, what do you mean being honest is the best way to live? It's clearly not the best way to live. It's that same tension that we feel in our lives because we are at one time in the seeds of the kingdom and awaiting the fullness of the kingdom. And so this describes what it's like to live in the kingdom. So I, I have a hunch that if you brought the book of Proverbs into the New Jerusalem, it would make total and 100% sense of the way that things work. Maybe less fools and sluggards, but (laughs) it would make total sense of what you were seeing. And to go along with that, one of my favorite Proverbs, we're going to go through a list of some of the ones that we like later, but one of my favorite Proverbs on this topic is Proverbs 25, verse 2, which is right in the section where um, Hezekiah's men have been, begun to accumulate these Proverbs. They're searching after wisdom. And it says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it is the glory of kings to search them out. Yeah. And I think what that proverb is speaking to is exactly what Hezekiah and his men were doing. They were gathering up the Proverbs that God right. had, had given to Solomon, that Solomon had spoken, things that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were gathering wisdom. They were trying to figure out how to live in God's world. And that's the glory of kings. And and don't think about that as like King David. Right. Think about that as that is the glory of what it means to be whole in Christ. Right. To be a son or a daughter of God is to glory in searching things out, in seeking after the way that God has designed for us to live. And so 
if there's one banner verse for Proverbs, that that to me would be a great one, is mm-hmm. read Proverbs as if you are embodying 25, 1 and 2. That the right. men of Judah grab all these Proverbs, they collect them, they put them together, because it is the glory of kings to search things out, to mm-hmm. uncover them, to find them. So enough of our uh, introduction here. Let's talk about how to read this book. Yeah. So you're going to get some interesting things here. First of all would be genre. What do you think about the genre of Proverbs? Uh, Proverbs is a little bit of a misnomer because not everything in here is a proverb, which we think of as a simple little snappy saying. Yeah, usually in a fortune cookie. In a fortune cookie, that's exactly right. Uh, There are some that are similes. There are some that are almost story-like. But basically, we just lump them under wise sayings, sayings that are profitable to learn and to know. Some of them are grouped together. I mean, all the Proverbs make sense on their own, but you'll discern as you read through here, particularly as you read through over and over in your life, you know, month after month or year after year, you'll discern that there are sections that even though each proverb makes sense on its own, as collected, as a group, they're talking about an overarching theme. Yeah. So that's important is to pay attention to the themes. And you'll see a lot of books on Proverbs arranged this way mm-hmm. because there doesn't seem to be a discernible order in Proverbs. Right. There are these recurring themes. And and one thing I would say is focus on the characters. So mm-hmm. there, there are recurring characters in Proverbs. There are friends. Friendship is a huge theme. It recurs right. over and over again. Obviously, we've talked about kings and queens. You'll see that over here. But then you see fools and fools. sluggards. Yeah. And uh, they do not get off very well in the book of Proverbs. They nor are, in life. Yeah, nor in life. But they are uh, the whipping boys of Proverbs. But one unique feature in chapter 26, you have what's what a lot of people talk about, the fool's paradox. You have 26 verse 4, which says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So should you or should you not answer a fool? (laughs) Exactly. And you know, I love this. To me, this is the essence of wisdom. You know, here's how I read this. You can't win when you're dealing with a fool. Right. And you know what? I have never seen a truer statement than that. Yeah. So you have to take this as what it is. It's wisdom literature. Uh-huh. It's, these are sayings. They're little stories. They're painting a picture of a world, a kind of world to live in. Some of them really deep and meaningful, and some of them seemingly very surface level. Like don't don't eat too much honey or your stomach will hurt. Right. Just this is good life advice. Right good there. life advice. Hey, can I take a gratuitous shot at social media? Sure. Okay, so the fool passage has meant more and more to me these days, the idea of you can't win is when you get on social media and you see something that is so absolutely absurd and so foolish that it begs to be corrected, mm-hmm. and you do it, and then you realize you're in the middle of a firestorm and you can't get out of this conversation with a fool. It is To me, social media has made that come true to me. It is an absolute illustration of a lot of the things in Proverbs. So we thought because of the nature of Proverbs, it would be uh, it, it would be good to just talk about some of the Proverbs that have meant the most to us or some of our favorites. So I'll let you kick off. What are some of your favorite Proverbs? You know, there's a whole section, obviously, talking about your tongue and being quiet and uh, listening more than you talk. But there's one in chapter 12, verse 18, that really 
uh, guided a lot of my business career, and I don't mean to tell you that I've attained this, but this is a proverb I come back to and have for many years. Chapter 12, verse 18 says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So this isn't so much about being quiet as it is about using your words for constructive purposes. I'm putting this in more business terms. And I would be in a lot of meetings, and I I really wanted to think about how do I be careful with what I say. I know there are Proverbs that says with much words comes a lot of trouble, and I knew that. Uh, But there are times when you need to speak up, and I thought, what is going to guide me on when to speak up, when not to speak up, and particularly what to say? And this has been a guide to me, the idea that words can slash like sword thrusts, and a wise man, wise woman, uses your words, it says for healing, but I interpreted that as what builds up, Mm -hmm. what moves us forward in this meeting, what encourages this person before me. And then when I became a father, I realized this proverb took on another layer of meaning to me, and that is when you're a mom or a dad, your words, I like to say it this way, your words weigh a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your childhood friends can say, oh, you're, you're ugly or you're stupid or whatever, and that may hurt their feelings, but those same words from your parents are devastating. And so for good or for ill, your words can be sword thrusts or they can be healing. Mm-hmm. So that has meant a lot to me in various phases of my life. So many good uh, proverbs about the tongue, about words, the power of words. Mm-hmm. I think of the one that says, well, a word fitly spoken is, yes. is like a setting of silver or gold. Um, again, another parallel to the book of James. James right. spends a lot of time talking about the tongue and it's, the power of words. A lot of people call it the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And mm-hmm. it's clear that James was steeped mm-hmm. in the book of Proverbs. I mean, his life was steeped in the idea of, of godly wisdom. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is in 24, verse 16. It says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And this is definitely one of those verses that you coach yourself with and you memorize so that you can have it when you need it. And it's, a, it's another one that, that's good for encouragement, too, is that the Christian life doesn't come down so much to succeeding every time as it does to repenting and being restored every time. So yeah. it's, it's counterintuitive at first to say the righteous falls seven times and rises again. You think, well, the righteous should be the one that, that never falls. Uh-huh. That's what righteousness is. But the righteous falls seven times, and what makes the righteous person is that he gets back up and continues, whereas the wicked stumble. There's there's a finality to this in the time of calamity. You can't count on them, and uh, when when things get tough, not only do they fail, but they don't get back up. So that's a that's a verse that's meant a lot to me over the years of when you're trying to assess where you are in your faith, you always feel worse about it than you probably should. Or in the moments where you've just been battling with something over and over and over and over again, this verse, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. Right. You know, the first thing that jumps into my mind when you say that, because that's a cool proverb, is David. Mm -hmm. King David is probably a great example of that. He wasn't you know, his righteousness didn't lie in his sinlessness by any means, but every time he would get back up, he would turn back to God. That That is a great proverb. You know, in that same chapter, there's one that I like. I'll have to admit, I like it as much because it's pretty. 
mm-hmm. as because of the warning is in chapter 24, verses 33 and 34. Listen to this. This is the ESV. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You know, there's just something beautifully poetic about mm-hmm. that. And I just thought, wow. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. But it's always been a warning to me against a tendency I have, and that is procrastination. It's not so much being lazy, it's mm-hmm. just not wanting to do certain things. And there are certain things that if not done now will result, maybe not in poverty or whatever, or want. Nevertheless, it's unwise yeah. to let things go. And I, I, that's been a tendency of mine to spend time on some things, not on others. And this proverb is a constant reminder to me. And that's one you see two or three times in the book of Proverbs. Mm-hmm. It appears over and over again. And I've used that one so many times counseling college students uh, <laughs> who it really, it, it is a literal description of the battle that sometimes is being fought in dorm rooms. Okay, time um, out. I think we need full disclosure to our listeners on this. So when you were in college, undergraduate, okay, so when you were an undergraduate, uh, there was a book of sayings that came out at Oklahoma State University, and I believe one of the statements was attributed to you. Do you remember that statement? It was, it was my life motto. Your college, life motto. Which is if you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute. Yes. Okay, so, so we're now talking to the man whose life motto was, if you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute. I don't know how that didn't get included in here. <laughs> I think maybe in some manuscripts that's in here. But uh, yes, that, that would be the opposite wisdom of a lot of what you read in Proverbs. Um, one of the ones that I have really loved through the years is in chapter 7. And in the beginning of Proverbs, what you'd see is a lot of wisdom against immorality. And in the middle section of Proverbs, you get general life wisdom. You get things like business, honesty, justice. Mm-hmm. In the first few chapters, and I think there's a reason why this is, a, this is a, uh, addressed to young men, is because in chapters 4 through 7, you mm-hmm. see a ton of of a father teaching his son how to avoid sexual immorality. Right. So in chapter 7, there's this amazing little description here. It says, My son, in verse 1, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. And then in verse 6, he starts to paint this little picture. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Mm. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Mm. And he goes on. I mean, this last to the end of the chapter, you get this whole story of this man who is taken up with this woman, and her husband is far away, and she says, we can have our fill of love until the morning. And he doesn't know, at the end it says, neither one of them knows. She doesn't know and he doesn't know that her feet go down to death and that she um, lays down in Sheol. And I just think this is such a great reminder. And And it really is so wise because it doesn't just say, Flee sexual immorality. Right. Which you do get that in the New Testament. Obviously, that's right. true. What it does is it tells you how to flee sexual immorality. And this is something that is so characteristic of an older person speaking to a younger person from life experience. 
is you don't just wind up with the woman whose feet go down to death. Nobody decides <laughs> that's yeah, that's exactly. what I'm doing. Right. Instead, I love how he just goes along, and this is exactly how the human heart works. I've seen among the simple a man lacking sense, mm-hmm. and he's not completely committed yet, but he's passing right. by her corner. He knows where she might be found. He's passing by her corner. At night, yeah. in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, uh-huh. and all of a sudden she appears. This is really a picture of what temptation looks like. And in the the Bible I'm reading now, this is the Bible I used in college, it's, uh, I have written in the margin where it says, passing along the street near her corner, don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really the point. That's, that's kind of the way that wisdom works is it, it's not just a prohibition of the act itself. Right. It's don't put yourself in the position to get there. So right. cut things off before you even get to her corner. Right. Don't even go over there by her corner. Right. In, and, and that's one of the values of Proverbs is several times you get little scenes like this where mm-hmm. it's, it's actually helpful in the way that you live. It's a real insight into the way that people work. Um, people don't just all of a sudden end up in sin. Sometimes you do, but right. a lot of times it is a process. And what this father's telling their son is, don't even let the process begin. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, this has been useful in my own life, but it's also hugely useful when you're walking with somebody in a small group or you're sitting across the table from somebody. And instead of saying, how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? What you need to sit down and say, how do we make sure you're not even on the corner? How do we right. make sure you're not even a right. block away from there? Right. So what do we need to do to take a different route home? You know, yeah. that's the question. Not, you need what do to I be, do to say no next time? It's, how do I just avoid the whole route next yeah, time? Yeah, how, how do you not even go over there? Yeah. So the, the, this is where it gets really practical in Proverbs, is there's mm-hmm. a lot of passages like this that are more than just a if this, then that. It's a real look, uh, an incisive look at the human heart. Well, in a practice, staying with that practical vein, I'll tell you one that this may be my most oft-quoted proverb, is in chapter 26, Verse 17, and I quoted it so often I came up with another, uh, I heard another saying that I really liked, but here is chapter 26, verse 17. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. That has always been so graphic to me, is meddling in a quarrel that's not your own is like taking a dog by the ears. Now, here's the problem. If you let go, the dog's going to bite you, so you can't let go, but you Mm -hmm. don't want to hang on. Now, what do you do? You're caught. And it, that's what it's like to get into a middle of a quarrel that is not your own. It's mm-hmm. sort of a mind your own business. And then here's how I've interpreted that in more practical terms for me. It's not just so much mind your own business. It's don't try to solve every problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you guys have probably heard me say this till you're sick of it. And that is not my circus, not my monkeys. Mm-hmm. And that's my modern paraphrase of this, is that, listen, sometimes it's not my problem to solve. Now, I wish I could tell you that I've been successful with this, but I think that this is something that is, when you have a helping mentality, I bet a lot of our listeners have this too, you really want to help. And you get into situations that you realize, I think I just grabbed a dog by the ears, and I, mm-hmm. I don't want to hold on, but I can't let go. And so this is one that I visit over and over because it's sort of preaching to myself. I can't solve every problem. Mm, that is a good one. 
The last one I wanted to share was in chapter 19, verse 11. And this is one I think comes to my mind a lot right now, just in the way our culture is going, the way that things are going in our country. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Mm. I think there are few Proverbs that that, uh, encapsulate the New Testament message better than this one. Exactly. That it is a virtue to be slow to anger. In a, in a world where virtue is now measured by quickness to outrage. Uh-huh. So if you want to make a statement now, or if you want to have the moral high ground, what you need to be is outraged. You need to be offended. You need to have this sense of moral indignation at what's going on in the world. Uh-huh. That's how we rank society right now, is the people with the most power have and harness the most outrage. Right. And there really could not be anything more antithetical to Scripture than that. Right. And that's why I think this really sums up, because it's it's after the character of God. We see that God in the Old Testament is described as being slow to anger. If there was anybody who ever had a sense of moral outrage that was justified, it was God. And, and yet... There's a lot of moments in the Old Testament uh-huh. where we see that God is patient and slow. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow uh-huh. to anger. And so we, as people who are living in the kingdom of God, have been called to be slow to anger. And that that is actually a virtue. That's something that we need to pursue. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, instead of our first thing being, okay, imitation of Christ... Uh, what would Christ do in this situation? Well, there was that one time that he flipped over tables in the temple. So that means that <laughs> let's go all table my, flipping. Yeah, my this. anger yeah, is right. justified. Instead, we see that he's meek and lowly of heart, right. slow to anger. And then the second half of this is just something that our world does not understand. It is a glory to overlook an offense. Right. So, in a kingly, from a kingly standpoint, overlooking an offense is something where you have the power to do something. And you decide to show mercy. You decide to overlook something. To not be personally offended by it. To not pay just retribution for it. To not exercise what is your right against someone. But actually, it is more glorifying. It's it's weightier. It's more significant. Uh It's more fitting of a child of God to overlook an offense. You know, what I, I love about that is the... New Testament idea of forgiveness. Sometimes I think we get that wrong, and I understand it's from a sincere heart, but the idea of forgiveness is like when something happens to you, it's like, oh, it's okay. Well, actually, it's not necessarily okay. Mm -hmm. So it's not like pretending it didn't happen. I like this proverb, and it, it flavors, if you will, my understanding of forgiveness is there was an offense, but it's to the glory of God and it's to the conduct of a godly child to overlook the offense. Mm-hmm. And I like that idea. It's a little healthier, I think, than suppressing mm-hmm. a wrong. And it's certainly healthier than insisting on my rights to take an eye for an eye. Right. I, I love that problem. Yeah, do we as, as the people of God have the capacity, the spiritual and emotional, the maturity, the capacity... To overlook an offense. Yeah. To at once, you're, you're right, acknowledge that something wrong happened and we are not going to do anything about it. Right. You That's know, tough. It is tough. And, you know, as a guy from Kentucky, I can't help but wonder how the Hatfields and McCoys could have turned out differently <laughs> had they heeded this proffer. <laughs> Lots of situations like that. 
Well, I have one more if, uh, if you've got time for one more. This is one that I think any of us who do any teaching or presenting or whatever uh, should really take to heart. It's chapter 27 and verse 21. And it, it really addresses this tendency in our culture to be a praise junkie. 27:21 says this, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by his praise. You know, we're not necessarily put into a fire to be tested you know, like silver and purified, but we're tested by our praise. And when I first read that, I thought, what in the world does that mean? Praise is a good thing. And then I realized, yes, that's exactly the problem is your character can be tested by your praise. Uh, does it go to my head? Do I become a praise junkie? When I teach or when I preach, am I always wondering, okay, how many likes will I get on social media? How many people told me I did an awesome job? Has this become about me and not about Christ? And this has meant more and more to me through the years, that a man is tested by his praise. Mm-hmm. Well, the book of Proverbs as a whole is one that has a cumulative effect. Yes. It's one that you remember certain Proverbs, like the ones we've talked about, and you carry those with you, and you think about them, and you pray that the Spirit brings them to you in the right moments. Mm-hmm. And it's something that as you read it over and over and over and over again, it has uh, an effect that you can't put your finger on any specific thing, but it has a cumulative, formative effect in your life. That as you read these, you become more like what you see in Proverbs. Who wrote that book uh, that says, Eat This Book? Yeah, Eugene Peterson. I should know that. Peterson. The book of Proverbs is one you definitely want to digest mm-hmm. and let it become like nutrients in your cells. I love yeah. that Bible reading plan where you read it over and over and over, whether it's month after month. There's, there is a cumulative effect, and digesting mm-hmm. Proverbs is very healthy. Yeah, so I, the, the closing thought I would leave is, Don't read the book of Proverbs and say, okay, I've got to put this individual proverb into practice today. There there are some good ones to do that. Sure. Uh, But but think a little bit more along the lines of what would it be like if I became the kind of person that these proverbs were true about in the total span of my life? Right. If this book were to characterize us, we would be uh, godly princes and princesses of the Father. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.